Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is Jenny McMahon. I'm an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Adelaide. I visit Melbourne very regularly. In fact, I'm originally from Melbourne. And when I'm in Melbourne, I really enjoy listening to 3CR. Also, 30 years ago, I used to actually come on to 3CR as an art reviewer for a Saturday afternoon cultural program. So it's wonderful to know that 3CR is still thriving. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Evil lurks in places you would never imagine and tries to charm its way into your life. Unknown. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I've got a bit of exciting news for anybody who isn't on Facebook and who doesn't want to access all the previous programs of Radical Philosophy on Facebook. Well, you can access them through the website. Uh, Just click on the link that says View All Previous Programs. And I'm speaking to Professor Diana Tejan Myers about female genital cutting. Welcome to the program. Thank you. What is your philosophical analysis of successful strategies? Yes, I, I focus on four philosophical points. First, and I'll, I'll explain these in more detail in, in just a moment. The first one is the plasticity of culture. The second, the competencies that autonomous agency are based on. Third, the adaptability of the human rights framework to different social and cultural contexts. And fourth, the indivisibility of human rights. Let me start with this idea of the plasticity of culture. At this point in time, we really shouldn't have to point this out but all societies, Western societies, African societies, Asian societies, European societies, all societies have cultures, and no culture is static. It's a common misconception that cultures are these things that so-called primitive peoples have, and that we in the West, Australia, the U.S., Europe, don't have culture, we just have our societies, and we have, we're always changing, we're always developing, we're always progressing, and everybody else is just caught in, you know, fossilized culture from some ancient source. Not at all true. All societies have cultures, all cultures evolve to adapt to changing conditions, and if they 
didn't evolve and adapt, they wouldn't survive. So the, the one thing that becomes clear to cultural groups that decide to abandon FGC is that the communities retain their common culture, the basic values around which their society is structured, values like fertility, and yet they retain their they retain their common culture and the co- and the cohesiveness of their culture without FGC. So cultural survival we find from these programs that I studied doesn't depend on cutting women's genitals. Okay. So cultures change and they change in complex and interesting ways. They adapt in different ways to different circumstances, but they do change. They are plastic. The second philosophical point that I find implied in these programs concerns autonomous agency. There are a lot of different ways in which philosophers theorize autonomous agency, but a very common version is to invoke some sort of self-reflection and self-enactment, reflecting on your values and goals, enacting, executing your values and goals. I think something like that is roughly correct, but I get quite specific about the self-reflective skills and the enactment skills you need and have to exercise in order to act and live more broadly, autonomously. The three programs I've discussed all train participants in a wide-ranging set of what I call autonomy competencies, so basically skills that you need to exercise to live autonomously. And they include, I'll give you a quick list here, they include introspective skills, imaginative skills, memory skills, analytical skills, reasoning skills, communication skills, self-nurturing skills, and executive skills, abilities to carry out what you want to do. And what happens in these programs is that the women learn to, to use these skills more and more effectively. I'm not saying that they didn't have them at all before these programs started, but they learn to use them more and more effectively, and they apply the skills to new issues. So things like FGC that had been considered sacrosanct become issues within the culture, subject to debate. And so I think that the key to abandoning FGC is that individuals are figuring out for themselves and in groups talking over their experiences with FGC and the harms and the pain that they've suffered, things of that nature. I think that that experience, talking over these things and a 
evaluating what they don't like about it and figuring out for themselves that they don't need and don't want to continue this practice. Discovering, really, that female genital cutting doesn't fit with their core values and their culture's core values as well as they had thought. So this kind of leakage takes place. Here we are making plans to materially improve our our community. We set up a health center. We set up a new agricultural program. And those skills that we've used in economic development leak into other issues, and FGC is commonly one one of them. So I think for me the most important thing about these programs is that the women and the communities that decide to abandon female genital cutting aren't aren't responding to anti-FGC coercion, aren't responding to FGC incentives, give up uh, female genital cutting and we'll provide more educational experiences for you. They're changing their own minds about FGC. They are deciding for themselves that it's not what they want to do. It's not what they want to do to their daughters. So I think autonomy is absolutely key here. Then turning to human rights. It's sometimes said, and you've probably heard as well as your listeners, that human rights are some kind of Western cultural imperialism, okay? I mean, right away, I want to say that certain scholars and certain politicians sometimes use human rights rhetoric to beat up on countries or practices they don't like. I totally disapprove of that. But it's clear to me that an important lesson to take from studying FGC is that people whose local and national histories and traditions are completely different from Western democracies. Despite the huge difference in their histories and cultures, they see human rights as values that speak to their fundamental needs and aspirations. On the ground, people in Africa, parts of Asia, South Asia, for example, do not see human rights as a form of intrusion. They see human rights as a set of values that speak to them and to their individual lives. And in the case of FGC, of course, the rights to health and bodily integrity and the rights of the girl-child have been particularly important. So that brings me to a final point that I wanted to make about the indivisibility of human rights. This is a thesis that is enunciated in many of the United Nations human rights documents. It's also a thesis that is widely accepted 
in feminist activist and philosophical circles. What the thesis is, is that no human right can be realized unless every other human right is also realized. So we can't fully realize realize civil and political rights if we don't also realize social, economic, and cultural rights. There's certainly some truth to this thesis, but it's an extremely powerful claim, and philosophically, I'm not sure that in its unqualified form, it really stands up. But one thing about the programs that I've been talking about, the anti-FGC programs I've been talking about, is that all of them link up different rights, rights from different spheres. So in the Kenyan program, the emphasis was on social and women's social and cultural rights women as empowered to make decisions about their own daughters and to set up the circumcision through words program. In the Egyptian and Senegalese programs, actually it was the economic rights, the rights to work and to a decent standard of living, women's rights to work and to a decent standard of living, that anti-FGC efforts find themselves linked to. So the rights to bodily integrity and the rights to bodily health got linked up to other human rights that supported the movement towards abandoning FGC. So I think that uh, what we can conclude philosophically about human rights from these programs is that linking up different rights from different spheres of human rights uh, endeavors uh, often has the result, ultimately, of leaving the FGC behind. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Professor Diana Tejan Myers about female genital cutting. Yes, it, it sounds like it sounds like a very good program, and especially getting uh, women to say that uh, they'd be happy for their sons to marry a woman that hasn't had any female genital cutting as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'm glad you bring that up again. I, I think that the public pledges and the assurance that you can be a respectable mother, you can be a respectable daughter, you can be a respectable family, even if you don't practice FGC. I I think that, as with so many things, it has to be known that people are giving this up and 
you know, that the community is not going to ostracize them, that they're going to retain their full membership in the community. Yeah, there's a tendency, especially when the, the laws have changed, but I think that the laws have to change first before community attitudes change. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, the laws change. But I, I, one thing that's quite quite interesting to be aware of, in Africa, in many, many African societies, the central national government really has little impact at the local, rural, community level. The, the real power, uh, political power, and unofficial legal power is in the community elders, the religious officials, the elders, um, the wise men, and so on. And it, law just doesn't reach as far as it does in the U.S. or in Australia, I assume. So here in the U.S., what happens at the national level siphons down to every corner of society. That just isn't true in Africa. They just don't have the institutional apparatus that we do. So it's really, if FGC is going to be abandoned, it's going to be because of local uh, efforts, not because of something going on in the capital city. Mm, yes, you've done some excellent study in the, in the field. So do you have any future study plans within this field? Not specifically about FGC, although, of course, it continues to interest me and I'm interested in following the course of developments there. But what I am definitely interested in and continue to work on is issues about autonomy in the face of oppressive norms and institutions. And I'll definitely continue to write on that topic. I've, I, I mentioned earlier that I've done some writing recently about the migration crisis from the Middle East and Africa into Europe. You're seeing some version of it in Australia. It's coming mainly from Asia. We're seeing it in the U.S., coming from Latin America. And people are responding to oppressive conditions at home by seeking to migrate. So I'm very interested in that. And I also mentioned that I've done some work on sex trafficking from Eastern Europe uh, into Western Europe, and actually worldwide, from Bangladesh into India. It's a huge phenomena globally. And so there seems to be no end of issues to discuss in connection with autonomy and oppression, unfortunately. And broadly, I'll continue to work on this topic. 
Yeah, especially with the sex trafficking, I don't think people really know how how big it is and how it, how it's affecting so many people because I was actually quite surprised myself when I was watching watching something about it and they said how with drugs you can only sell drugs once but if you've got mm-hmm. somebody in sex trafficking you can sell them mm-hmm. you know 10 20 times a day yes as ghastly as that sounds. Well, human trafficking generally for labor, I mean, in the U.S. certainly we have a problem with people, migrants, getting picked up and trafficked into factories, trafficked onto farms to work in fields, pick crops, and so on. I I think no one really has any understanding of how extensive the problem of trafficking in persons really is. And I think, I mean, internationally, in international law, and very typically in national law, uh, trafficking is seen as a crime problem. The, you know, with a focus on the traffickers, the perpetrators. But it's also human rights problem. And in my work, I try to focus on the human rights of the victims of trafficking in the same way that I focused on the human rights of the victims of FGC in the work that we've been discussing today. Yes, and, and also there, there is a responsibility for consumers because I, I know in Australia there's a, a, fairly, a fairly common brand of chocolate and they're starting to actually put on the chocolate that it's, it's ethical chocolate and be, mm-hmm. because it has actually brought it to people's attention that a lot of these mm-hmm. people that have been trafficked are children who have to actually mm-hmm. go and pick the the cocoa beans to produce the chocolate mm-hmm. and they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're slaves basically. They're working all day and they're locked up at night and the only thing that they have to eat are the raw cocoa beans that goes, go into making chocolate. So I suppose if customers okay. are faced with a, with a choice and maybe you've got to pay a few cents more, but I think that it is a responsibility mm-hmm. of the consumer as well. Yes. They certainly are the responsibility of the consumer, and that's especially true as well in sex trafficking. If there weren't so many men, mainly, who wanted to pay women for sexual services, sex trafficking would not be profitable and it would go away. But we really have to be extremely careful about these consumer-oriented programs in connection with my work studying sex trafficking I I learned about uh, those programs against uh, consumer focused programs against sweat sweatshops in various parts of East Asia and also programs against targets made by 
child workers. That's another area in which children are used for very intensive labor and exploitative labor. But one thing that scholars studying are the consequences of these consumer programs to abstain from buying certain products have discovered. Scholars who've been on the ground in the communities finding out what happens when the carpet factory closes, what happens when the uh, clothing factory closes. Well, unfortunately, one thing that often happens is that the children get sold into the sex trade instead of these other forms of labor. And so we have to be careful in being good consumers that we aren't just kicking the can down the road. I don't know if you have that expression in Australia, that we're not just contributing to an even more disturbing usage of child labor. We have to make sure that we we're also putting in place ways for the family to survive, ways for the family to make a living, ways to make it possible for the family to survive without child labor and putting the children in school rather than just moving them on to another horrible form of child labor. So it's it's all extremely complicated and baffling and deeply, deeply disturbing (laughs) for those of us who would like to be decent about these things. It's hard to be good in the global economy the way it's currently structured. Yes, it, it certainly is. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversation. I've been speaking with Professor Diana Tejan Myers about female genital cutting. That's all we have time for today. Hope you've been given plenty of food for thought and thank you for listening.